Hello and welcome to the Bunker Daily. I am your host, Alex Andreu. Super Thursday has been and gone. It was super for some and not so for others. Political disembowelings are happening in plenty, and now is the time for us to read the entrails. Nobody better than my guest to help us do so. Kenny Campbell is a former journalist and editor of the Metro paper for over a decade, a formidable political PR operative and chief poll-watching geek over at cross-party internationalist campaign group Best for Britain. Welcome, Kenny. Thank you very much. Entrail reading. I'm going to add that to my CV. First thing, thank you very much. That's going to give me a lot of action on LinkedIn, I suspect. <laughs> Kenny, um, a quick survey of what's happened might be that parties in charge of the pandemic response in England, Scotland and Wales were basically rewarded. That quick survey is often right. Was this simply an incumbent selection? Well, the idea of an incumbent selection is a really very easy reading of it because every election is an incumbent selection if the incumbent hasn't screwed things up, obviously. Now, I mean, to set the scene, just to remind ourselves, Johnson saw gains in, I think, 11 English councils and there was one additional assembly member in London. Mark Draper over in Wales, um, despite the Conservatives making some significant gains, he still managed to add to his seat tally as well. And, of course, Nicola Sturgeon got very close to an absolute majority north of the border. I think what's fair to say is that the pandemic has come good for Johnson at the right time. Um, it's either that or he's working with a crack team of COVID master tacticians and strategists. And I don't think there's any doubt at all that the three leaders benefited from the public perception that the handling of the pandemic was good. Whether or not you agree with that perception is is you know, is another matter altogether. Mm. And I've got a suspicion that it may well be that the public was actually voting a lot of the time to avoid messing things up as we finally come out of lockdown. And, that, you know, rather than it being an incumbent's election, it may be that it was a, a hairdresser and pub's election. So <laughs> crying out loud, let's just get this thing out of the way and get back to some sort of normality. I take your point. Let me flip it the other way, see if you like it any better. At a time when... Mark Drakeford, Nicola Sturgeon and Boris Johnson are transmitting into our TV sets on a daily basis with various updates. Was opposition to them particularly hampered by being unable to campaign in the normal way? Well, I think so, but everybody faced the same the same challenges um, at the end of the day. The, the issues that the leaders faced were in many ways still the same issues you'd face at any election. You know, what do you stand for? What difference will you as a leader and as a party make to, to me as an individual? And again, to come back to my first point, the biggest difference you could make was get normality back and get, get everybody's lives back on track. It's it's very hard to ignore the, you know, the impact of the pandemic. And, you know, if these elections had taken place six or nine months ago, the results would undoubtedly have been very, very different indeed. Yeah. Um, and the reason they would have been very different indeed, of course, is because of how a reaction to the pandemic was, was panning out at that stage. Yeah, because at that point it was seen as uh, having not been been handled not well. well. I think it would be fair to say that it wasn't being handled well, but yes, yeah. Are there proper lessons to be drawn from such a peculiar election or is there a danger in adjusting sort of your entire political compass during such an electrical storm? 
I, th- I mean, crikey, yeah, there are. I mean, there are definitely lessons to be learned. I suppose the caveat to saying there are lessons to be learned is that I've got the sneaking suspicion that it's the same old lessons that have to be learned time and time again. Such is the way with politics, you know, mm. such is the way with people, really. If there's any takeaway that I've had from this particular set of elections, it's the reminder that trying to do things right is much more important than trying not to do things wrong, if that makes sense. That makes perfect sense. And that's almost a shorthand way of saying, so what does Labour under Keir Starmer stand for? So we know what Johnson stands for. You know, he, he stands for very much getting on and doing stuff, blundering on through and, and doing what Johnson is very good at. We know what Sturgeon stands for. You know, she's a single-issue politician. Our supporters would say there's much more depth to what she to our operation than that. But at the end of the day, her political existence is all about independence. That's, 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 that's what she stands for. And in Wales, Mark Drayford is a very, you know, he, he still, I think, stands for uh, a, an older form of Labour politics, much, you know, that, that predates the Blair Mandelson-Brown era. They're all quite clear, really, about what it is they stand for. Whereas... Mm. At the Starmer at the moment, Labour is still struggling to work out what it stands for. It's still struggling to work out what direction the party should be heading in. Never mind headline policies that will get genuine cut through on the doorsteps as well Mm. as in the the op-ed pages. Is there? Do you think the red wall, the former red wall, I should say, is now a lost cause for Labour, or can it be competitive in places like Hartlepool again? I think the issues are far bigger than Hartlepool. And you know, I'm always nervous about reading too much into individual by-elections. Um, the you know, local personalities play a, point, a role. Local politics can play a much bigger role than they do at times of national elections. But nevertheless, it's very hard to look at what happened in Hartlepool and not draw some lessons. I mean, thinking back to, to Thatcher, you know, Thatcher's secret was, of course, not that she had Middle England in her back pocket. Thatcher's secret was the fact that she had a, a huge amount of working-class support. That's what carried her on through through some very difficult times um, indeed. And she was offering lover or hater, she offered her supporters in the working classes as they were then, uh, a route out of poverty, if you yeah. like. You know, that was the ambition. It was okay. There was permission given to be from the working classes, even from the lower middle classes, and to have that ambition. And that was a huge part of her success. Now, Labour has, of course, lost in it, you know, as much as there is a working class these days. But that end of the voting spectrum, of course, is now becoming a foreign land to Labour in many ways. And Hartpool is waving a big big warning flag about that. And it's not, it's not a huge surprise. We've seen the trends happen in wages. I've seen some analysis that will do a sort of scattergram of how parties did in areas and then overlay, for instance, how many manual labourers there are in that area or how strong English identities in that area. And, you know, granted correlation is not causation, but the correlation between the Tories doing well in working-class areas that have a strong English identity, and I mean a strong exclusively English identity, because the same thing 
could explain that in places where there's an alternative identity like Londoner or Scouser or Mancunian, the Tories arguably did less well. So have they become effectively the party for the English working class? I find it hard to argue against that. Labour support did increase in areas where fewer people identified as English only. And, you know, and we are seeing the rise of nationalism within England. And by that, I mean, you know, places like Northumbria, Cornwall, uh, you know, the idea of, of much more local identities rising to the surface as um, parts of England reflect what's happening in Scotland and Wales. In other words, the, the London-centric nature of politics and life um, in, in England is problematic to lots of areas outside the M25 and beyond. The, of course, the, the thing is that this works very well for the Conservatives at the moment and does not work very well for Labour. And you can add that to a, a long mm. list of issues. I mean, I've seen other analysis that show um, Labour struggling in areas where there's it, it's linked to home ownership. Yeah, yeah. I'll I'll come to that because I think that's quite important. Starmer's reaction, the policy review, a botched mini reshuffle, and the hiring of a sort of red wall expert in Deborah Mattinson, is that does that signal an intention, or is it basically the equivalent of a of a team in the relegation zone panic (laughs) by strike strikers in the January transfer window? (laughs) He's off to the LV Vans League. I mean, it's um, the, the question remains, you know, what does he stand for? And shuffling internally is fine for, for, the, for the chattering classes. It will keep op-eds flowing in, in the national press for weeks to come. And there'll be people like us chatting away about it happily for weeks to come as well. <laughs> but on the doorsteps, what difference does it make? You know, it comes back to this issue, what does he actually stand for? And he's in a very difficult position because the nature of leading the Labour Party in recent years, certainly anyway, has been very much about trying to to, work, to, to not do things wrong, not to offend mm. too many people internally. Now, let's not forget the Conservative Party are past masters at tearing themselves asunder. And Europe was the issue that almost did for them on more than one occasion. And they've managed to turn that around into a huge success story that you could say about about Labour for sure. You know, we'll, we'll keep coming back to it again and again and again. It doesn't really matter who you pack your front benches with. It doesn't really matter how many policy reviews you have. It doesn't matter what political games you play. In the end, if you're out campaigning on the doorsteps, there's going to be one or two key issues at most that are going to get cut through with voters. Yeah. And if you ask people, what does Keir Stammer's Labour stand for? They'll look at you like you've got two heads. Yeah, we were having a chat with Miata Vambule on the podcast yesterday, and she was saying that Labour at the moment lack a story to sell. They lack a narrative. You know, they lack a sort of two-sentence thing that you can tell people, this is what we're going to do. Why was Wales so different? I mean, Mark Drakeford does not seem on paper like the most exciting leader. Is... is, (laughs) Well, I, I I don't want to I don't want to do him down, but he seems to, he seems to me to be the equivalent of a chartered accountant running a country. But is that a good thing at a time of difficulty? Actually, I think it is a very good thing. Let's answer the question first of all. A safe pair of hands during a pandemic is probably a good pair of hands during a pandemic. Hmm. Uh, but, I mean, Drakeford's history itself is is interesting, though. I mean, he studied Latin um, at the University of Kent, 
before coming back to Wales. And he started work as a probation officer in Cardiff back in 1979, just as Thatcherism was, was starting to, to kick off. And um, the appalling conditions that he saw uh, among offenders in Eli, I think it was, persuaded him to get involved in politics. Now, I mean, this is where his sort of relatively dull political demeanour comes for. He went into academia, he lectured, became a professor at Cardiff University. You know, he's done the proper um, ivory tower stuff. But mm. he was a quite a pivotal figure in the background of Welsh politics. He was the main policy advisor for Rodri Morgan. Rodri Morgan was the, the first first minister of Wales. And the, the two of them were part of a small group of fairly left, vaguely left-leaning friends, I should say, in the, in the 80s and 90s. When Wales got devolution, it was fairly chaotic to start with. Roger Morgan wanted to steady the ship in about 2000 when it happened. Now, Drakeford was brought in as, if you like, the intellectual keel to that project. He was the guy behind the scenes doing the thinking, doing the policy work, while Roger Morgan was the man in the spotlight. Drakeford's mm. never a man who's sought um, the spotlight as such. And, you know, he, he worked on policies that will be familiar to people in Scotland, you know, free school breakfast, worked on bus passes. And crucially, I think, like an awful lot of what Roger Morgan represented, Drakeford and Morgan both defined what they were doing in terms of opposition to Tony Blair's new Labour. He came up with a phrase, let me think what it was, it was clear red water to sum up their approach. And yeah. so his approach has always predated the, the Blair, Mandelson, Brown version of Labour. And its, its roots are very much in, in Labour's past in a, in a way that works, I, still, mm. I, I, still, mm. I think, in, in the south part of Wales in particular. He's a very different individual. He's not, he's not a natural in the spotlight. Yeah. What about places in England where there was a notable swing to Labour, like the West of England mayoral, mayoral election? I'm thinking of Alok Sharma in Reading West, John Redwin Wokingham, big swings to Labour in those areas. Will they be looking at their already much reduced majorities, a swing to their left in the locals, and money being funneled away from the South with some concern? I think that second point you make is a genuinely important point that it's not one that's been picked up at all. Uh, the Conservatives, in effect, gave up on London. The mayoral race, um, I mean, they, 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 they cut the credit line to Sean Bailey, to their candidate in the London mayoral elections weeks and weeks and weeks ago, and there was a, an acceptance that yep, mayor, the London mayor is going to stay Labour. And, of course, that's fine because they can continue to, if you like, bleed money out of London and use it to buy votes, I use that term advisedly, in other parts of the country. It's a fairly uncontroversial term at the moment. The platform was, if you elect Tories at the council level, where the government is more likely to give them money. <laughs> I think it's, a, it's probably... I mean, they said that pretty openly. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Which always makes me think, crikey, if that's what's happening above the line, what are they up to behind the scenes? Yeah. And the answer is proper politics, probably. Stuff that we're not allowed to talk about, usually. So, I mean, would Labour be wiser making them fight a, a little bit of rearguard action? Because it seems to me that the reason they have such freedom right now to tailor their message to their the seats they want to capture and keep in the North is the fact that 
you know, Labour are obsessed with seats that have been traditionally theirs, even though they're now thousands of votes away. Yes. And if you did a, a sort of list of target seats, they're not, they, they wouldn't feature in the top 50. It, at the expense of seats like Reading or Wokingham, which could flip for a couple of thousand votes. Well, the, I mean, the Conservatives have a huge luxury in England now. You know, Johnson and Sturgeon, in, in many ways, are each other's most valuable allies is the wrong word, but most valuable tools. As long as Sturgeon maintains the SNP stranglehold on Scotland, Labour has very little chance of even forming a coalition government, far less a majority government. Likewise, Johnson is a very, very handy bogeyman for Sturgeon as well. You know, it's it's the Batman and the Joker. You choose which one's Batman and which one's the Joker. I'm not getting into that particular fight. <laughs> <laughs> but there is an idea that, you know, in 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 the more, again, we use the term working class seats, but you know what I mean. Johnson is, how can I put this? Well, you like your food, don't you? You know, you're a man who likes to yeah, cook yeah, yeah. in the kitchen and do you still occasionally think, do you know what I want tonight is I want a Chinese carry out or I want to go down and get a, I want to get a chicken barty or fish yeah, and chips. Yeah. You yeah. want that dirty little takeaway, even though you know it's bad for you, you know mm. it's going to make you feel good in the short term. And I think that is exactly what Johnson is. He's the dirty little takeaway for people when it comes to politics. And most folk aren't going to spend their days that we do agonizing over the minutiae of what's happening in the world of politics and political strategy. And rightly so. Quite rightly so. I'm much happier for it. You brought us nicely on to uh, Nicola Sturgeon. So we we now get a narrative that the SNP getting half of the seats and vote percentages most parties can only dream about and making gains after a decade in power was somehow a below-par performance. Is this pure spin or does it speak to, to Sturgeon's complete domination of Scottish politics? It, it speaks to the, the huge challenge Scotland has in being dominated by one argument around independence. The division the up there, which is, you know, depending how you read the figures, either it's almost a 50-50 split, depending on what yep. time of the year you ask the question, or it's more like a 33-33-33 split with slightly more people undecided. It's a, it's a dreadful situation for the country. Mm. And, the, you know, if we've learned any lessons from Brexit, it's that the, those divisions are problematic in the long term and they're not they're not going to go away. You know, Sturgeon only has to win once, so the, that fight isn't going to go away anytime soon. And again, what does anybody else stand for? It's quite clear what the SNP stand for in Scotland. If you're going to make a counter-argument, the, the best you're going to manage at the moment is like the Conservatives were doing, you have to vote for us, vote for us tactically if need be, vote for somebody else tactically, because we want to stop what Sturgeon's doing. In other yeah, words, yeah. it's a negative play as opposed to the very positive play which Sturgeon is is able to bring to the party. Yes, I, I thought it was very interesting how you could almost find the minute of the night when the the Tory rhetoric changed from every vote for the SNP is a vote for another referendum to not every vote for the SNP was a vote <laughs> for another referendum. I mean, there's been a lot of creative adding up in order to suggest that somehow pro-independence parties didn't quite get majority. But it's just churlish to deny that that's the direction of travel, isn't it? It is. I mean, you know, if you just take the SNP and the Greens and you have 
the answer that you need. That you know, the in terms of of uh, political uh, will, there is uh, a pro independence majority up there politically. That's not the case. It's not as simple as that um, from an elect from the point of view of the electorate. But for those people who have got their hands on the on the on the little powers, little levers of power up in Scotland, um, that's that's very very significant. Do you think Sturgeon will be secretly actually praying that Johnson denies her a referendum? Because, like you said, the polling is still you know depending on the wind direction in the day, roughly evenly split. Is Westminster denying Scotland the right to decide its future the boost the independence movement needs? It seems to me that the brave and strategically smart thing to do would be to say, okay, let's have another referendum right away, but let's legislate to say that you can't have another one for, let's say, 20 years or 30 years. The knee-jerk reaction is to say, no, you can't have it, in which case we'll have it in two years' time or four years' time, and the independent side will probably have a boosted claim. The, I mean, from Sturgeon's perspective, uh, Johnson is useful. She, doesn't, she, she just doesn't want to be calling any sort of big political event while the pandemic is ongoing. That plays against her and will cost, will cost votes ultimately in that that big 34, 35, 36% of the population who are uh, undecided, that's not going to play positively with them at all. Mm. As far as I'm um, saying, have a have a, another um, poll now and then legislate to ban one for the next 20 or 30 years, I think there's a problem with that as well politically. I've always maintained that if you, you – know, let's take the union as an example, but it's not the only topic that applies to mm. – if you want to maintain – the union, if you wish to maintain the status quo, then make the case for that positively. Don't yes. go in negatively and say, da, 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 we're going to stop this because we're afraid of, of the result that might happen. Make the case for it positively. Again, you know, we, we saw this in the in the Brexit debate, you know, the, the relentless negativity on both sides, it must be said. And then those that were able to make a, a believable or easier to understand case, a positive case, in the end, won through. And we've seen very strongly in the pandemic that, you know, the devolution in the United Kingdom is quite dysfunctional, that we lack the formal mechanisms for the various bits to talk to each other and decide things together. Maybe Gordon Brown's big sort of review of how we do devolution is uh, a good thing whichever side of the argument you fall <laughs> God bless him. I don't know. Another Gordon Brown review? Uh, uh, <laughs> uh. Well, let's not call it a Gordon Brown review. Let's just <laughs> run with the idea rather than, the, rather than the, the name that's attached to it. Okay, so I want to briefly touch on turnout before we finish. We got record turnouts in Scotland and Wales. Yeah. Part of an upward trend and low turnout in places like London, which uh-huh. fits into a pattern of a, a downward trend, the Brexit referendum blip I'm accepting. Larry Sabato used to quip that every election is determined by the people who show up. <laughs> Do low or high turnouts favour one side or the other, or should we all be pulling together to get as many people voting as possible? Well, it's interesting because the turnout in London was higher than I expected it to be. I mean, I genuinely thought at one point it might be in the sort of mid to high 30s. 
um, because it was a given that Sadiq Khan was going to to win there. Uh, you know, I think yet again what the high turnout figures in the areas you mentioned remind us is if you give people a reason to turn out, they will turn out. You give them a positive reason to turn out, they'll turn out in ever greater numbers. There's there's not an absolute lack of voter engagement in this country, but there is quite often boredom, you know. And mm, you know, yeah. it, it, again, it comes back to what does you know what the party stand for? What is the issue that's going to get cut through on the doorstep? If you engage people properly, they will cast their votes, and that's a you know that's a positive lesson to take. Whether or not you think the the results went your way politically or not, the fact that local elections like this encourage so many people to get out is is hugely encouraging. And of course, you know, local issues are very important. And I think this time people were probably more focused, again, because of living in lockdown for the last year. So maybe we should lock everyone in for a month before every election. Only um, if you're a conservative, <laughs> because one of the other takeaways I've had from the local election, we should just lock everybody in all the time anyway. The country would be far better for it. One of the takeaways I had from this election, of course, was that if you, um, if you were looking for information, if you were looking to you know, inform yourself... Over the last six to eight months, your echo chamber has been even smaller than normal. You know, if you are engaged with politics, mm. yeah, you go mm. on Twitter, yes, you go on Facebook, yes, you'll read the newspapers and websites that you read. But for most people, the, the circle that they were moving in was even smaller, yeah. even more local, hyper local. Yeah, I've, I've experienced that personally, been surprised seeing people after a long time how much more one way or another they've they've traveled minutes before we recorded this was the queen's speech and loads of electoral reform in the voter id first past the post for for mayors possibly fixed term parliament act going are any of them sensible proposals or are they just about a government with a huge majority trying to rig the system for next time? Oh, I do hope it's about the government trying to rig the system for the next time. At least that would be transparent. You know, um, what worries me is when it's done behind the scenes. We don't see what's happening. Mm. And it's not as if this government has to rig the system. England is becoming very rapidly a it single party rigged. state. Yeah. And it is, of course. And it's only going to get worse. It's very difficult. I saw some figure work done a couple of months ago taking the last general election results and applying the, the victor's margin to Labour. They still didn't get a majority. Mm. Even with the, the, the number of votes that the Conservatives got, this particular analysis didn't give Labour an overall majority, which means that it's increasingly becoming the case that it's, if it's not impossible for Labour to win power, it's going to be damn difficult. Um, and even with a coalition, it's going to be very, very difficult indeed. So the system is already madly swayed in favour of, of the Conservatives. They don't really have to do very much. There is, of course, a danger that it blows up in the face in the end. You know, the, 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 there comes a tipping point where even Johnson blows up. And I think what will happen is, is my big bet for the next three or four years, is, <laughs> is when when Johnson does blow up, he'll blow up big. It will be, some, it'll, it'll be a monumental catastrophe. If you have heard any of our podcasts in the last two weeks, you will know that this is my theory entirely. That someone, <laughs> someone like Johnson is not ever running against anyone else. They're always against themselves. That's true. And, and the moment they, they decide to torpedo their career, as he has done regularly. Kenny, thank you for your time. I'll Pleasure. get you back on next year and we can laugh together at your predictions. <laughs> 
<laughs> Always a pleasure, never a chore. My congratulations to all who stood and all who got elected. Whether we agree or not, it is a brave and essential thing to do. And to those feeling down, despite what Kenny says, let me say this. Things will turn around. They always do. The mighty will fall and the vanquished will rise. History tells us this with absolute certainty. And if you think it cannot happen quickly, let me ask you this. Could you have predicted any of the last five years when Cameron got a majority in 2015? What makes you think you can predict the next five? This is Alex Andreu in the bunker saying over and out. The Bunker Daily was presented by Alex Andreu. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Arshbold and Yelena Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production.